Did you know that 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions? Did you know in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of 10 verses, one out of 10, 288, deal directly with the subject of money. Well, hey, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and you are listening to the third message in a series on the book of Malachi. Today, we find ourselves in Malachi chapter three, starting in verse eight. Hope you're blessed and challenged. Malachi chapter three, verse eight. Uh, Zig Ziglar tells a fascinating story as we open this morning about a thief, a man named Emmanuel Nenger. The year is 1887. The scene is a small neighborhood grocery store. Mr. Nenger is buying some turnips, and he gives the clerk a a $20 bill. Now, as the clerk begins to put the money in the drawer to give Mr. Nenger his change, she notices as she's putting it in the drawer, some of the ink begins to smudge off of the $20 bill. She looks at Mr. Nenger. She's known him for, well, for years. And and then she looks at the smudged bill. This man that she knows is a trusted friend. She's known him all her life. And and there's no way he could be a counterfeiter. And and so she gives him his change and he leaves the store. um, And essentially, uh, $18.87, $20 is a lot of money, right? And so she's a little bit concerned. She alerts the authorities. The police come and they find out that the bill indeed is counterfeit. And so they get a search warrant, according to this story, and they search Mr. Nenger's home, and in the attic, they find that he's been reproducing a fake money. He's, a, he's actually a master artist, uh, and he's been painting, uh, get this, painting $20 bills using brushes and paint. He's been spending time as an artist creating counterfeit bills. But you know what else they find in the attic? Not only is the stack of money that he's literally handmade uh, and painted, but in the attic, on the other side of the attic, they also found a stack of portraits, three in particular that he had painted. And so they took all of his property and eventually sold the portraits at auction for $16,000 at auction. Remember, in 1887, currency uh, was... uh, much different than today. More than $2,000 for all of his painting. And here's the irony. It took Nenger as long to paint one counterfeit $20 bill as it did to paint a $2,000 portrait. It's true, Zig Ziglar says, that uh, Emmanuel Nenger was a thief, but the person from whom he stole the most was himself. Huh, wow. We've been studying the book of Malachi for the last two weeks, and we've been seeing the, the sad state of backslidden Israel. And after settling back into the land and back into Jerusalem from their captivity in Babylon, the nation had grown, well, they've grown cold in their love for God. And they find themselves going through, like you and I do from time to time, religious motions, the outward motions, without really having a heart that seeks after God. Uh, practically, this fleshed out in their relationships. They were divorcing their wives, and they were uh, intermarrying with heathen peoples. They began perverting the law and twisting God's command to kind of suit their own preferences. And as we'll see today, they were actually robbing God by holding back their tithes and offerings from the temple. But as we'll learn, like Emmanuel Nenger, the person that they were really stealing from was themselves. 
Uh, today, if you're taking note, we're going to have four main points and sections in this passage. And so here is our outline on the screen. First of all, verses 8 and 9, we're going to look at the verdict of giving. The verdict. What does God say about our giving? You can come here this morning and say, well, this is who I am. God says, this is my assessment. The world may say, hey, you're this terrible person. You're this awful. God says, hey, you're a sinner, but in Christ, you're a saint. All right? So God's verdict is way bigger than our personal assessment. Secondly, verses 10 through 12, we're going to look at the value of giving. There is a value in our offering, in our gift. Verses 13 through 15, we're going to see the Israelites' attitude towards serving. Uh, They crossed their arms and said, no, it's vain. I don't want to serve. And then we're going to see in verses 16 through 18, the virtue of God's servants. Again, what God says about those who serve him. All right, so let's begin with that as our outline. And you know, let me just say real quick, if you're visiting, uh, we, don't, we don't just like harp on giving. If you're here last week, they're like, okay, I was here last week, you talked about divorce. Now this week you're talking about giving. Uh, third time's a strike. Like, what are you talking about next week? Uh, so just want to encourage you, this is not something that we as pastors love to preach on, nor is this a passage that, like I, I was watching the video real quick and I was looking at Malachi as Joe was reading. I'm like, who picked Malachi, right? Who picked Malachi as the book? Oh, the Holy Spirit picked Malachi. All right, so we're going we're gonna to study this today. If this is your first Sunday, this is not something we talk about unless the scriptures that we're going through bring it up because we teach through the scriptures verse by verse. So look at Malachi 3.8 with this first idea, God's uh, verdict of giving. Verse 8, uh, Malachi says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. God says, in effect, you've been stealing, but you've been stealing from me. Now, in context, we'll look at this next week as we close Malachi. Uh, Verses 1 through 7, God is alerting the people, listen, that he'll be coming soon. And his messenger will go ahead of him and prepare the way. And so this is a call for repentance, for a turning back. Uh, But the people ask, kind of uh, hypocritically in verse 7, well, in what way should we return to you? How should we come back to you? That's a question meant to scoff at God. You could say it this way, maybe this morning. Oh, I'm backslidden? I need to come to God? How do you suggest that I do so? And so then God drops the verdict. He says, okay, here's how you can return to me. You're stealing from me. You're a thief, right? You're a burglar. Uh, Just let the question in verse 8 sink in for a minute, church. Will a man rob God? Is, Is robbing God even possible? Is that even possible? What a foolish thing to do. I'm going to steal from God, and he's not going to notice. He's not going to care. I'm going to steal from him. Think about that, the silliness of that for a minute. Now, while we're on this note, one of my favorite scenes in any movie is uh, in The Dark Knight, all right? Um, Definitely the best Batman movie that was ever made. If you disagree, hashtag therapy. All right, I'm sorry. It's the best movie ever uh, from a Batman perspective. And they just muted my mic. Yeah, very funny. Um, And so basically, one of the scenes that I love is um, one of Wayne Enterprise's accountants has traced some money and figured out that Bruce Wayne um, is Batman. So he's kind of found this out. And so he confronts the executive um, with some schematics of the prototype. Uh, And so am I dropping out? All right. So... Uh, let's try this then, guys. All right, let's try this. So he basically, um, he basically shows up with schematics of the uh, Batmobile, right, the Tumblr, 
And uh, he says this. He's like, I want $10 million a year for the rest of my life. And I love what the executive says. He says this. Okay, let me get this straight. You think that your client, one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world, who is secretly a vigilante, spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands, and your plan is to blackmail this person? Good luck, right? Uh, that's what I would say to someone who seeks to rob God and get away with it. Good luck, good luck. Uh, the people, in effect, are saying, well, how have we robbed you? And God says, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. Now, uh, listen, a robbery can only take place if we take from someone something that belongs to him or her. And God is plainly declaring the tithe belongs to me. What else can we call it but robbery if it belongs to him and we use it, right, for ourselves? Uh, one person said, other than the Bible, no other book reveals the truth about our heart like our checkbook. I like that. See, under Mosaic law, the Israelites were to give a tenth of their livestock and their produce, uh, or they were to redeem it with money and add a fifth part. Uh, this was a tithe, a tenth, a 10%. The tithe was paid to the tribe of Levi for their support, Leviticus 27. Uh, the Levites did not have land. They did not have an inheritance because the Lord said, I want to be your inheritance. And so though you gave the Levites, the priests, 10% of your wealth, they didn't just keep it. They would give it specifically among the Levites to the priests, their 10%. And then every third year, everyone in the, the whole of Israel would bring a tenth of your produce and you would give it to both the Levites and, as well as the foreigners and fatherless and widows, Deuteronomy 14. So there's the tithe, but then there's also offering. Notice Deuteronomy 18, verse 4. He says, you are to give them the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, and your olive oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. So if you were to take the 10% and then the 10% of your produce and then the offering, this is well over uh, 10%. Whatever the field or the fowl yielded, you gave 10% along with all of this. So this is about 20% of your income, of your, of your um, yield. And so when they came back into the land after the Babylonian captivity, the people <clears throat> basically said, we're not going to do that anymore. And they stopped giving Levite, uh, the Levites the tithe. They no longer gave that third-year produce, the 10%. They even stopped giving the offering. And so in their greed, they were keeping back everything would actually belong to God, and they kept it for themselves. So look at the result in verse 9. In verse 9, God says, You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. See, you thought you were receiving the blessing of that 10%, that 20%, but all you received was a curse. You weren't robbing Levi or the priest. You were robbing me. Uh, and notice, this wasn't one or two individuals. Notice, it says, even this entire nation, the whole community, uh, while they sat in luxury, the temple was fallen into disrepair. I like that opening video in our series that seems a little confusing. There was kind of this self-indulgent wealth and prosperity uh, but because there was no regard for God, they would begin to see riches evaporate. Rather than turning to God, the people were turning against one another. In fact, Haggai, who is a prophet who preceded Malachi by about a century, kind of his grandparents, speaking to the grandparents, said exactly the same thing that Malachi addressed. Uh, Haggai 1 4 says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Wow. See, the people were living in nice paneled homes, but they were failing to make any contribution towards the temple or the work of God. And sadly, the money that they were holding back was actually burning a hole in their wallet, burning a hole in their purse. Does that sound familiar, guys? Earning wages, does that happen to you? You're earning wages, you're putting them into a purse, and it just has a hole in it. It just disappears. Perhaps you, like Israel, at the time of Malachi's prophecy, you're failing to give God a portion of your income. Perhaps you, like Israel, are being selfish with the tithe and the offering. And by doing so, you're robbing God by keeping back what belongs to him. Peter Marshall says, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Wow. Now, it's important on this subject to point out the concept of the tithe, okay, the 10%. I just have to make this note. I want you to jot this down. This was not a special love gift from the people to the Lord. This was a debt, okay? It was an obligation, You must pay the tithe. It wasn't, I get to pay the tithe. You had to pay the tithe. You were required to pay it. Long before the law, though, Abraham met a mysterious man named Melchizedek. He was a priest of Salem. I believe later became Jerusalem. Uh, The writer of Hebrews points out that Jesus is a priest according to his order. But Abraham came and offered a free will gift of 10% of his wealth to Melchizedek. And so because of that, 10% is kind of a decent benchmark, Uh, but listen, it's not a biblical requirement, at least for Christians in the New Covenant. The Old Testament law of the required tithe is not taught anywhere in the New Testament. Why? Because the law of giving replaces the law of the tithe. Now, I've met a lot of Christians who are like, should I give 10%? Should I give less than 10%? How much should I give? And a lot of times we're confused about this topic and We're just not really sure. We just don't give it all. Um, One CNN headline caught my eye. April 6, 1999. Here's the headline. Armed robber holds up uh, church during Easter service for the offering. This actually happened. It happened in a Louisiana church of 100 worshipers. A gunman came in wearing a ski mask. uh, And 15 minutes into the service, while they were passing the offering, held up the offering. And then he fled the, the church with the money. Well, guess what? He gets to the parking lot and gets in his car and he starts counting. <laughs> and he was really disappointed because <laughs> it was only a couple dollars. It was all singles. He's like, I could make more working at Applebee's. This is horrible. But David Gusick said this. I like this. If our question is how little can I give and still please God, then our heart isn't in the right place at all. We should have the attitude of some early Christians who essentially said, we're not under the law. Uh, under the tithe, we can give more. Giving and financial management are spiritual issues, not just financial issues. Wow. Now listen, I just want to acknowledge giving is a sensitive subject. Don't let my mic like throw off your attention span this morning. Giving's in a, a very sensitive subject. A lot of pastors shy away from it. Now I know what you're thinking. There's a lot of pastors who love to talk about giving. They're talking about it every week. Come on, bring in the tithe. We're gonna pass it again. Don't give me that stuff that jingles, right? And they, you've been maybe a part of that ministry. <laughs> I was a part of a, no joke, I was part of a service one time. It wasn't a church service, it was kind of a uh, ecumenical gathering. And the guy said, we're locking the doors. 
until we reach, we raised 20,000. He said it just like that. And uh, I ran, literally, I ran out of the door. The guy's like standing in front of the door. I like tackled him and got through the door. Not going to be a part of that, right? A lot of people shy away from it. A lot of people love talking about it. Typically, if you're fleecing the flock for money, you're not legit. You're a false teacher. Come on, guys. This happens. You get, you get the envelope in the mail. Have you gotten it yet? Uh, maybe you're not on the mailing list, all right? But I've gotten this from a pastor. This is actually what the letter said. I think we have it on the screen. It said, hey, we're trying to reach our $100,000 faith goal. Give us $100 by faith, and God will multiply it back to you as a 1,000, okay? So I got that, and I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to write a response letter. And so I wanted to do this. If I get one next time, I'm going to write this. I'm going to write this. Hey, since you serve a God who seems to be broke, <clears throat> and you're trying to challenge me to give by faith, you please give me $1,000, and God will multiply that back to you, and then you've met your goal, right? <laughs> They've still never sent the check. They've never sent it. So though, though money's misrepresented often in the pulpit, okay, many pastors, because of that, shrink back from teaching what the Bible says regarding it. And so though it's a sensitive subject, ultimately we're talking about stewardship and money. Listen, Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about money. In fact, Jesus spoke more about money than about God's love. Jesus spoke more about money than about heaven and hell combined. Did you know that 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions? Did you know in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of 10 verses, one out of 10, 288, deal directly with the subject of money? It's crazy. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, but more than 2,000 on money and possessions. This is an incredibly important and relevant topic that we don't just shrink away from because people have misrepresented it, right? Uh, or we get afraid that this is a little bit too personal, Pastor. You're really intruding, and you need to keep your hands off. This is something personal. One person was visiting the doctor for their annual checkup, and the doctor took the necessary measurements and then had the patient lay down. And then he began pressing in various places on the patient's stomach. And after a few moments, in one particular place, the, uh, place, the patient yelled out in pain. Now, one of two things happened. Either the doctor pushed too hard without the right sensitivity, or there's something internally wrong with that particular spot. Okay, if that's the case, the doctor would say, wait, 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 it's not supposed to hurt there. We need to do some more tests, right? In the same way, if we find ourselves this morning in pain when finances are being taught about, uh, maybe in our discomfort, we criticize the messenger or the message. Maybe the pastor pushed too hard, or maybe something's wrong. Either way, it's not supposed to hurt here. And we're not supposed to be hurt when we talk about money. It's the simple reality of financial stewardship, gang. And we need to be willing this morning to look at honestly at our wallets. Martin Luther said this, take a look at your own heart and you will soon find out what is stuck to it and where your treasure is. It is easy to determine whether hearing the word of God, living according to it, and achieving such a life gives you as much enjoyment and calls forth as much diligence from you as does accumulation and saving money uh, and property. Uh, I want to spend a minute on this. So if you're taking note, please jot down what I call the seven aspects of giving, the seven aspects of giving. Again, we're not under law, but we're under grace. So tithing is not the law we're under, but the principle of giving. So can we jot these down or take a picture? Seven things that giving must be. Giving, first of all, 
must be purposed in our heart. And we'll go into these at community group on, on, uh, uh, this, during this week, community groups. It must be purposed in our heart. So you should spend time praying about how much you should give. Okay? And then you should purpose in your heart to start giving that amount. Lord, what should we give? And I want to I do this and purpose in my heart to do this. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. But secondly, it should also be costly and generous. One person said, you should give and it should sting, but you should smile as it stings. Uh, we, uh, our family, as a one-income family, we give as much as we're able to, uh, and it's our desire to give 1% more every year. Uh, and that's costly, and we feel it, but it's worth it. So it should be costly and generous, and definitely something I'm challenging my own life about to be more generous. Thirdly, it should be consistent, right? Maybe it's annual, monthly, bi-weekly, weekly, but it's not sporadic, right? It's, you walk in and go, oh, I forgot to give this week, right? It should be consistent. Uh, fourthly, it should be uh, without compulsion, right? Again, you should never feel manipulated or forced to give like I was in the back of that room, right? You've got to give today. If you don't give, you're not going to heaven. You know, some silly thing that people bring up. Um, so it should be without compulsion. Number five, giving must be to our local church and reputable ministries. I personally believe if you're submitted to the teaching and authority of a body of elders, then you are to be financially invested in supporting the charitable work that they're charged with overseeing. Now, you could support other kind of tertiary ministries on the side and missionaries, but you must, I believe, um, first begin with the local church ministry you're submitted to. Number six, we are to give to the poor and needy, Matthew 6, 2. Jesus said, when you give, not if. And I think that's why it's important we support uh, ministries like Learn to Fish, Bridge of Life, uh, and others that care and feed for impoverished people. And finally, giving must be in proportion with our income, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Remember the time Jesus and his disciples saw everyone putting in their big, large sums of money at the temple treasury? And he points out this little widow, and he says, she gave more than everyone because she gave out of her poverty. She gave two pennies, essentially. But she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she had. In proportion to their income, they were giving a meager offerings. So it's easy, guys, for all of us to fall into fear or neglect when it comes to giving. But at the heart of it, it's robbing God when we withhold uh, from giving. By the way, there's other ways we can rob God. It's not just financial. John Benton says we can rob God by trying to keep time mostly to ourselves, time that should be given to God in personal prayer, time that should be given to God in family praise and worship, time that should be given to God in serving the needs of the local expression of the body of Christ. So uh, God says in his verdict, you're robbing me. Now, let's move faster. Look at the second idea, the value of giving, verses 10 through 12. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. He says, try me, and then he says, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And then he goes on, and he makes kind of an amazing promise, verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer, for your sakes, so he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. And then he calls himself this again, says the Lord of hosts. Please circle that. He's saying that over and over and over in this section. We'll see why that's important in a minute. 
And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now, verse 10, he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. These were special rooms set up in the temple to receive the offerings. Um, Some, though, have taken the challenge of verse 10 and applied it to individuals. So they would say this, okay, I'm going to claim the promise of verse 10, that if you're financially in trouble, start tithing, and God will, like, test God, and he'll take care of your 90% as a family or as an individual, okay? But listen, Malachi's not addressing individuals in this verse. Remember verse 9? The whole nation, the, the entire people. So when God says uh, this promise, and he says you, it's plural, you as the community, you as the body, you as the nation, Verse 10 is the one time in Scripture we're encouraged to test God, to try him. There are no corresponding verses anywhere else in all the Bible. God is inviting his people here to ultimately trust in his faithfulness. This is a faith question, which makes it a spiritual issue, not a financial one. And often, isn't that the case when we fail to give or serve? It has less to do with the practical and more with the spiritual. But I like that God promises Israel three things. Jot these down really quick. He, he, he promises three things. First of all, to provide his people with blessing. To provide his people with blessing. In this case, it's the form of crops. God would bless their crops. Uh, it could also be a reference to the drought-ending rain. I'm going to bless you. Uh, secondly, he promises to protect his people from failure. In this case, crop failure, but more specifically, he says the devourer. Um, that was probably a reference to locusts or other pests. But it could also be unripe or undeveloped fruit. God's going to protect them so that everything they grow, none of it's wasted. It's all going to bear lasting fruit. So he not only provides his people with blessing, he's going to protect his people from failure. But thirdly, he's going to provide his people with a testimony. Notice verse 12. He says, all the nations will look at Israel and say, they're blessed. They're a land that's delightful. Now, if I can have your attention for a minute, it's really important that we're careful with these verses, okay? Let me just be clear. These promises apply to post-exilic Israel. These promises do not apply to us directly. Now, as a principle, God does bless us when we give. And when we're faithful stewards of our finances and we give as unto the Lord, we do find that our bank accounts will hit the red less, right? So God can certainly use Uh, the testimony of a faithful steward in greater ways than the person who's stingy or self-indulgent or greedy, okay? But these promises are not specifically for us. They were never intended for individuals to yank them out of context and just start saying, okay, we're not giving anything. Let's give like 10% and then like all of our dreams wildly will come true. And like, that's not the idea. These were were for post-exilic Israel as a community could, could like collectively to start being generous and see if God wouldn't absolutely bless his people in abundance, okay? So it's important that we understand that distinction today, right? Now, that should still challenge and encourage you to give, but someone came up to me one time, and they're like, hey, could you, like, not cash my tithe check? I tithe my entire paycheck, and it's not going to go through uh, because then I'll be broke for the whole week. I was like, let's maybe not do that next time, right? They're like, but I'm trying to test God. I'm like, no, no, no. We have to understand the context of what we're reading, okay? And so that brings us to the third idea this morning, the vanity of service. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, well, what have we spoken against you? 
You've said it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we've kept his ordinance, that we've walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. For Eve, they even tempt God and go free. Wow. Listen, there's always a temptation to think verse 14. Look at verse 14. There's always a temptation to think this. It's useless to serve God. Have you ever thought that? It's just useless. Look at all the work that I'm doing. Look at all the labor I'm going through. I'm trying to be set apart and do the right thing, and everyone's doing the wrong thing, and they're so blessed. They're cutting corners at work, and I try to be the guy of integrity, and I get written up, right? I'm trying to live a marriage where I'm laying down my life for my wife, and this guy doesn't care about his wife, and yet they seem to be so happy, and and it's just not fair. The word useless here should be translated vain, but Here's how else you could translate it. Vain, false, emptiness, deceitful, worthless, and lies, right? The people are thinking, you know, it's just empty to follow God. They didn't feel that the reward was worth the cost. And notice that uh, they said in, in verse 14 that they feel like mourners. They're walking around in funeral clothes while we're trying to keep God's ordinance. They're, they're saying, what profit is it? And they started looking around at people and said, man, it's just better to be wicked and proud because at least it pays off. Now, before you judge the Israelites here, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever looked at your life and thought this? Following God is not worth it. It's unfair. You ever, you ever done that? It's just not fair. Look at the life people are living. I'm comparing my life with them. It's just not fair. This happened in the Psalms, by the way. Psalm 73, Asaph, one of the psalmists. He felt the same way. In Psalm 73, he wrote a song about it. Like to hear it, here it goes. Here here he says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph looks around at everyone who's not serving God, and he starts getting envious. He goes, man, everyone who doesn't serve God has things going for them. He goes, you know, it's just not fair. Like, they have time to, like, actually go to the gym and be physically fit. They don't have any trials to endure, right? They indulge in whatever they want to with no conscience. They have tons of property and money, and they're arrogant and haughty against God. And so he starts thinking, this is in vain. What am I doing? A different Hebrew word, but the same idea. It's useless to serve God. Well, thankfully, Asaph began to look beyond the temporal, beyond the earthly, and started looking to eternity. Later, he says this in Psalm 73, 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Notice this, until, until. Can you guys say the word until? Until, that wasn't very excited, but until, right? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. See, it's never vanity to serve God unless you're serving him vainly. See, that's what makes their remarks so ironic. It's just vain to serve God. But they didn't understand they were serving him vainly. They didn't understand that there's an until, until we look at eternity. Uh, It's similar to what Jesus said, quoting Isaiah in Matthew 15. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. If that's your worship this morning, it really is in vain. If it's just a list of do's and don'ts, and lip service and not life service, then it really is in vain. You have nothing to offer because 
nothing we really offer to God should be in vain. As Spurgeon put it, Spurgeon said, giving to God is no loss. It's putting your substance into the best bank. Giving is true having. As the old gravestone said of the dead man, what I spent I had, uh, what I saved I lost, but what I gave I have. Wow. This morning you may look at the ungodly around you and you think it's just useless. It's vain to serve God. There's no reward. And yet you don't understand that little word until. Until you look at eternity and you realize the faithfulness of some of you who have been ministering to our kids. And you're like, I miss church once a month, twice a month to go in there and serve those little rascals. And they're awesome, but they're not getting it. And then one day you realize you're in heaven going to see the reward as you see those kids and the, the fruit that I believe is on your account for ministering to them, you're going to see that. Some of you stay-at-home moms, you're like, I don't understand. We've made so many sacrifices as a family. I want to devote time with my children. You don't see the reward, but in eternity, you will. Some of you have, have sown some seed in someone's life, and it didn't seem like it, it went anywhere. And you were ministering and living your example and preaching the gospel, and it didn't seem like it made an impact. But one day, maybe you'll see fruit in eternity. We have to live in that a reality of until, until. And so that brings us to our fourth and final point this morning in the text, and that's the virtue of God's servants. Look at verse 16 with me. Your heading above that should say something like a book of remembrance. There's a variety of books in the scripture, the book of life, uh, and here we see a book of remembrance. And not that God forgets, but God chooses, almost like a scrapbook that we use, to kind of celebrate and remember special things. And so this book of remembrance, notice he speaks about it. In verse 16, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. And God says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I asked you to circle the word or phrase Lord of hosts the phrase Lord of hosts means the God of the angel armies. We just read it uh, in our song. We just sang it out loud. The God of the angel armies. Uh, this God is sovereign and he's all powerful. And he says to those who are willing to fear him, they're mine. And not only are they mine, uh, but notice that he says that they're his prize. They're my jewels. And not only that, but he says, they're my children. Not only that, but he says, they're my people. You're going to discern between the righteous and the unrighteous when you look at those who serve and who do not serve me. See, we see here an eternal perspective. And when we live our lives as unto the Lord, we will reap a reward. And there's a distinction between those who are set apart and those who are just living worldly, self-centered lives. There's a lot of us that look at our situation and we go, well, I want to follow God, but I wonder, is it worth it? And we don't see the value of living for him. But notice that God says, I'm going to write a book about them. It's going to be like, in human terms, a scrapbook where we look back and we've cut out different times in our life, different memories that we go back and we remember over and over and we kind of pull those out. My wife, Jen, made for me one year uh, on my birthday a book of remembrance. And it was a book about our family and, and it was all these different pictures of our, of our kids some embarrassing ones, right? And so there's all these great kind of old school pictures. If you come over to our house, you're allowed to see it once and that's it, okay? Because I have some interesting hair in some of the old pictures. Uh, but it's a great book to look back and remember and think through. And God says here that I'm gonna write down and record. And notice what he calls them. He says that they're my jewels. Now, I like what David Gusick said. He said, Christians, you're a lot like jewels. I like this. He says, you're hard and durable. 
You're prized for your rarity. You're also prized for your luster. You're made by God alone. You may be of different sizes, yet you're all jewels. You're found all over the world. Uh, like jewels, Christians, you're associated with royalty. You're protected. You're hidden and undiscovered. And you know what? Some of you are not yet polished. <laughs> I like that, right? We're jewels. There's a distinction between the world and the people of God. And this is fully realized for those of us who are in Christ. We're set apart. The idea here is that, listen, serving God, and it is so worth it. It doesn't feel worth it. it doesn't feel worth it like last week when we had a time change and it's extra early, right? And we get up and we're, it doesn't feel worth it. I'm just serving you out of my own strength, right? I just, I just feel exhausted. But here God says, you know what? You are jewels, and I'm going to remember you. Uh, I'm going to spare you like my son. I'm going to show a difference in the world between the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, next week, we're going to close the book of Malachi by looking at Malachi 3, 1 through 7, and all of chapter 4, which sounds like a lot, but it's six verses. And we're going to look next week at the coming messenger who precedes Messiah, who precedes Jesus. And it's going to be an awesome time as we uh, celebrate Palm Sunday uh, together. But as we close this morning, I want to invite, invite the band forward. And uh, we're going to close in song. And let's go ahead now and close our Bibles and um, prepare our hearts as we close this morning. And I want to close with uh, a pastor's challenge to you. We quoted from John Piper earlier today. And I want to quote from him again. He says that Christians should live with a wartime mentality. Remember people in the 40s were doing this? Does anyone remember that? Well, maybe not. Maybe you weren't there. But remember reading it in history? Remember reading about the wartime mentality in the 1940s? There's a picture we have of the Queen Mary. Not the monarch, but the ship. All right? This is the Queen Mary. This is a, a passenger ship. But in the 40s, they transformed it into basically a soldier transport from America to England. 15,000-plus soldiers put on. They transformed this kind of cruise ship into a battleship, so to speak. And maybe you don't remember this, but in the 1940s, the British and the Americans were at war with Germany and Italy and Japan, and though the soldiers were fighting the wars abroad, families back home, well, they weren't living high on the hog, right? Uh, people started rationing their food and their gas and their clothing, or if they wanted to avoid rationing, a lot of people started planting victory gardens in their backyards. Women got jobs at the defense plants building airplanes. Scrap metal drives started springing up in communities all around the country. Why? Why did they do that? To support the war effort. You follow me? You follow me, church? My pastor's challenge for you this week is to evaluate your life and look at areas where maybe there's not a wartime mentality. Because listen, if there's not a war, then victory gardens, that, they, they turn into hipster organic gardens, okay? Rationing food, gas, and clothing, that seems a little legalistic. Having a community-wide scrap metal drive, that's eccentric. Quitting your job to build B-52s when there's no war seems like you need counseling, okay? But listen, folks, we're at war. And that means that we should gladly make personal sacrifices in order to see Christ's cause advancing on earth as it is in heaven. 
Listen, we need a wartime mentality. We need a kingdom mentality. Too many of us are praying the Lord's Prayer. But here's what I mean by that. We're praying, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, that's not what Jesus said. He says, thy kingdom come. And as Greg Laurie says, if thy kingdom come, that means my kingdom go. And some of you here this morning, you've been living as if life is a cruise ship when it's a battleship, guys. We're, in, we're at war. And while we comfortably argue back in the barracks about the paint color, there are souls on the front lines dying. Shame on us for sitting back when it's time to reach forward. We expect missionaries to over, overseas unreached people groups. They should live sacrificially for the sake of the gospel, but why don't we hold ourselves to that same standard? I read a stat this week that embarrassed me so much I didn't even want to share it this morning, but we spend more annually on Halloween costumes as a nation than we do for overseas unreached missions. Can you believe that? More on Halloween costumes for our pets. Isn't that, isn't that sad? We spend more on that than we do supporting the war effort around the world. So when people perish around us because we don't have enough funds to get the gospel to them as a church, maybe we're guilty as well of robbing God. May God forgive us. I'm not trying to leave a guilt trip on you, but I don't want us to forget the price that Jesus paid. Jesus didn't give 10%. He didn't come down feeling like, all right, I've got three years. I'm going to spend out three months, right? Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. He was born into humanity. He lived, he suffered, he died, and he paid it all. He gave up his life as a ransom for many. And as J. Oswald Sanders says, the basic question is not how much of our money we should give to God, but how much of God's money should we keep for ourselves. I'm so thankful that the Lord didn't hold back anything. He who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Jesus paid the price. He held nothing back. Jesus didn't rob God. No, in Philippians 2, it says that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And then what he did is he made himself nothing for you and for me. And may we this morning bring an offering that's worth something today the offering of our lives because he did not hold back his son, but he graciously gave him and will graciously give us all things. Anything that we give back to him is already belonging to him anyway. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Join us next time for our finale on Malachi chapter 4.